Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 154. I have the wonderful Australian filmmaker Damon Gamo joining me today. Damon released his first feature film in 2015. Many of you I know would have seen it by now, That Sugar Film, and uh, it was uh, the highest grossing Australian documentary across Australia and New Zealand of all time. Let that sink in for a little bit. Uh, Damon has also recently completed the documentary 2040, uh, which is of course, uh, part of what we're talking about today. And it looks at what the world could look like in 2040, if all of the best solutions that existed right now today across environment, community, food, and design were implemented right now. Uh, and it's a fabulous film. We went as a family to see it. I urge you to grab the DVD or the internet download or see if your country is going to be having an official release of the film. There's obviously also the opportunity to use a screening of the film if you want it to be, if you're a bit of a community organiser as a fundraiser. Maybe you want to get a community garden happening. Maybe you want to fundraise for some uh, farmers to transition to regenerative agriculture through amazing programs like Farmers Footprint or uh, Carbon 8, and you could hold a screening and you could donate all the proceeds to a really amazing uh, regenerative organisation because I think what's really beautiful about what's happening now is we have ditched the word sustainability uh, because really if we just sustain what's going on right now, it's not good enough. It's not a good system. It's broken in so many ways. We need to regenerate. And I love uh, Damon's slogan for the film, Join the Regeneration, because we sure need that to be happening. And I'm so proud of our community for being at the forefront of that movement as we have been for many years. And it's done, it's only growing, right? Uh, You know, we used to be the crazy weird psychos in our families. (laughs) Now there's people asking us questions. So that's really, really wonderful, super positive. Uh, I want to just quickly mention to you before I hook into that chat with Damon that we have one more week uh, for the Aussies with 15% off the Dr. Bronner range, excluding gift packs and bulk sizes. Your promotional code is LOWTOXLIFE, so head to the Dr. Bronner Australia website and go nuts, stock up. It's such a good bar soap, one of my favourite, favourite products. Just a simple bar soap, helps you get rid of so much plastic. Never mind, of course, the fact that Dr. Bronner uses 100% post-consumer plastics in their particular packaging. So when you do buy the Castile soaps in the plastic bottle, It is all post-consumer. But I just want to make also make mention of their incredible uh, inroads that they've made with ingredients and sourcing over the past decade or two. Uh, It was just, I mean, you know, it's perfect for today's topic about regeneration. David Bronner, uh, CEO, uh, has actually joined forces with um, Patagonia and gosh, I'm going to forget who the third one is. I'll pop it in the show notes for you guys to actually establish a regenerative agriculture certification in the US. And uh, so that's a little bit of the more community-based work they're doing beyond their company, but of course, within their company and the ingredients that they use, 
they completely revolutionized the use of palm oil by, uh, of course, not <laughs> harming the orangutan populations. And unfortunately, a lot of people who don't have the knowledge see palm oil on a, a Dr. Bronner package and go, no, you know, they use palm oil. I can't use their product. And I honestly feel like I'm some great defender out there on the social interwebs explaining where their palm oil comes from, the incredible economic turnaround they're able to create in the communities that they have built their palm oil plantation, their palm plantations with to use the oil from those palms. Uh, And it is far, far away from where all the hideous trouble is when it comes to palm oil. Uh, So if you do want to dive into ingredient provenance, uh, please go back and listen to the wonderful show that I did with uh, Gera Luzon, PhD, Vice President of Operations for Dr. Bronner. He really lets us under the hood and shows us exactly what's going on and their Surrender Palm, which is their um, uh, subsidiary company that they've partnered with local um, local producers on is one of the most inspiring uh, companies uh, if Dr. Bronner, as if Dr. Bronner wasn't inspiring enough, they then rehabilitate communities um, from old industry by uh, creating new industry, teaching them, providing education for families, for children, for work for the whole family, medical care, you name it, you know, really incredible economic reform. And I think if we're going to uh, use products that are less toxic for us, they also need to be good for the environment and good for the people who produce them, right? Less bad is not good enough. Um, You know, I always use the example of just because you see gluten-free on the front of a package does not make super processed cheesy puffs that happen to be gluten-free good. You know what I mean? It's just less bad for someone who can't eat gluten, but it's certainly not good. So what I love about company, a company like Dr. Bronner is it is about being really, really good and not just being less bad. So please make the most of that wonderful 15% off. Uh, all of their ingredients are non-GMO. Uh, David has done some incredible activism uh, for hemp and the use of hemp products in cosmetic uh, and cosmetics and soaps. And, uh, of course, you've got... Um, organic ingredients across the board so you can really really trust what's in the bottle and what the bottle's made from post-consumer plastics i hope you enjoy the last week of that special i know i have stocked up on a couple of little things we use uh sal suds in our bathroom to scrub down the tiles Uh, it's just a little bit more of an abrasive cleaner and it's a fantastic stain remover pre wash as well for the clothes um but then of course there's the whole range of gorgeous castile soaps and bars and lip balms i remember being at the factory myself a couple of years ago when i visited in southern california and i actually filled a tray of lip balms peppermint by the way that were going to japan so if there are any japanese listeners today maybe if you've been a user of uh, dr bronner products for a couple of years you might have used one of the lip balms that i hand poured Enjoy today's chat with Damon. It's a really inspiring chat if you're feeling in any way demotivated by uh, our current government. Um, 
Well, and no, you know what? I'm just going to leave that there. Demotivated in any way by what you see going on in politics or in the media, then today's conversation is for you. We really unpack quite a bit. It's very hopeful. And again, I urge you to go out and see 2040 whenever you can or download it from online. Enjoy. Hello, Damon. How are you? Hello, Alex. Thanks for having me. Yourself? You well? Yeah, yeah. I'm great. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to this chat. Love what you've done with 2040. And, uh, and I have to tell you a story. I also saw that sugar film and I thought that was great storytelling. I took my son to the premiere in Sydney and he was five at the time. He's now 10 today. Uh, and, um, we bumped into Pete, Pete Evans, who I think was speaking on the panel that night and, Pete goes, oh, g'day, mate. You know, how are you doing? What are you here for? He goes, I'm here to see my first naturopath movie. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it was just the it's cutest. A, it's, a little, it's a little known genre uh, <laughs> of filmmaking, but there's quite a growing naturopathic natura, cinema emerging around the world. Great. Uh, well, he clearly saw a market for it as a five-year-old, so I'm expecting big things for my retirement plan. <laughs> Too funny. Anyway, so um, he really appreciated it. And I thought it was amazing at the time that we could go and see a a documentary film together and uh, have the adult and the child get as much out of it as each other, but separate things. And I think that's one of the magical things that you do. So I'm looking forward to um, digging into that a little bit more. But before we go down that storytelling rabbit hole i want to know what baby damon was like so the kids you know did you have like hippie parents who showed you the way or did you have a series of kind of ahas as you as you grew up um yeah i'm keen to see how caring about the planet in such an epic fashion panned out for you yeah no i was i was very very late to that and um uh spent a lot of my my childhood and uh, and sort of early twenties completely self obsessed and to the point that it, I think it got to a point where I thought this is just not a way to live. So I I really that was a big motivation for making especially twenty forty was to that that people do find it hard to connect to this topic. We're so distracted. We're so bombarded by content in our lives at the moment. At the very moment where we need to put those devices down all that content down and actually connect with nature because it's crying out for us. So I, the film really, this new one is a response to that, that part of me that thought, why can't I connect with this topic? I know it's important. I do care about it. I have a child, but what is it about the way it's being delivered that doesn't fill me with any motivation? And uh, I had quite a profound moment talking to an environmental psychologist named Renee Lertzman and, and she really basically nailed it for me and said that, you know, when, when we do receive this information, that's overwhelming and, you know, amorphous and you don't know what to do about it. What does fight climate change even mean? That it does shut down a part of our brain uh, called the limbic system. And when that's shut down, um, you know, we, we will activate that part. We can't use our prefrontal cortex, which is where we problem solve and we think creatively. So that pretty much sums up me, I guess, for the last 15 years where I've sort of had an awareness of the climate, but, found it really convenient to believe the deniers as well. It was kind of suited me to say, oh, it's not happening anyway. It meant Mm. I didn't have to invest in it. I didn't actually have to be present with the enormity of what it is. And I I get the sense that a lot of people um, are using that as an out as well. There's a a paralysis that comes with this kind of information. So, 
yeah, no, I, I went through some really large changes as a human being, probably in my early thirties, I'd, I'd reached this point, this kind of nadir where I just went, I, this is not the way to live life. There's got to be something more to it. I was deeply unhappy in relationships, in work, all sorts of things. And I started, I guess, going on a quest of self-discovery and reading all sorts of interesting books that really sort of pop psych self-help books to, you know, much more deeper books, Alan Watts and whatnot, uh, taking ayahuasca in the Amazon taking psilocybin, uh, doing 10 day silent retreats, whatever it took to actually start um, unraveling myself and working out who I was and what were these blocks to me? Why was I so such a prisoner of the, my own story that I was telling myself around invariably being inadequate, not being enough, uh, why couldn't I let myself be happy? So once I started to unlock that and let get myself out of the way, suddenly you you see the world with different eyes and you see the beautiful symbiosis of everything and how we're connected and your own part in it. And I think that's you know um, no no coincidence that I then shifted from acting, which is such a self focused industry, to start making my own films and, and, and whether that was sugar or now 2040, um, I just removed a lot of the things that were limiting me and keeping me, um, focused on myself that they just, it just wasn't serving me. Mm, it's so interesting that you talk about that prefrontal cortex, uh, and, uh, and, and being inhibited by our self-absorbedness, uh, being such a huge part of this uh, issue, right? Because for me, I see it as that. And then it's compounded by our survival state. So we are in a, you know, so many people I know, double mortgage, double income, you know, nutso to the hilt. They've got like two hours with their kids a day. It's go, 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 go from here to there. You can't think about creatively solving the climate crisis when you're leading a life like that, right? And I know that also from chronic illness, that so many people are in states of chronic, chronic illness it's the same. Yeah. You're very, not through any fault of your own, but you're very selfish at that time because you're just trying to get through the day. And there's yeah. too many people just trying to get through the day, which I think is one of the biggest reasons we're not more awake to this. No, spot on. And it's, um, yeah, people are in survival mode and they're just trying to get by day to day, look after their kids. And again, we saw that, I think, in the election in Australia is that the people double down on what they know and they you know, we all value security in our job and, and we can't, we don't have room to think about the bigger picture at the moment. And that's, you know, again, I think we talk about this a lot, that this whole climate change issue is an opportunity. It's actually, it's feedback to fundamentally change how we're operating with each other and the planet, but also how we change our system. That this, The reason people are so distracted is because we are working too hard. We're overworked. We know that this metric of GDP just doesn't, match with our own happiness there are countries with you know gdp a fifth that of the us and the people there are living longer and healthier and happier lives so that's a myth as well that what is this constant quest for more growth and more accumulation and more money and whatever it might be which isn't making us happy but at the same time is destroying our own home that again we this isn't just about our environment if we don't deal with the inequalities and the the, the, the way people are feeling socially they're not going to have time to care and connect with this, but they do. All of us do as human beings. And I think that's, again, to be honest, where I think the environmental movement has probably not quite got it right over the last 30 years is to assume that these, some people don't care. And I'm sure there are some, but to just march into a place and say, hey, 
what you're doing is hurting the planet. You've got to stop doing that. That's, that's not the human way to get through this. We need to actually see where people are at and go, they care, but they also care about their livelihoods and their kids' futures and the jobs and the money and how to put food on the table. That's, that hasn't been as part of the conversation. So what we've really tried to do with this film is bring that group in and say, how, do we, how can we do this differently? It doesn't say mm. there isn't extinction rebellions and climate strikes. That's absolutely necessary. But we also need to um, see this as an opportunity to connect at a much deeper level to each other. And I think that's the only way we're going to get through this. We're not going to do it um, just by relying on a few people to, to big giant tech fixes. It's calling us to strengthen our communities again, to change the way we're producing our food, to change the way we interact with each other. Uh, and I, I think that's an important way to start reframing it. Not Absolutely. Saying, oh, it's all scary, we're doomed. That just doesn't work anymore. I know, right? And uh, I was at the recent uh, Climate Reality Core training with Al Gore and his team. And one of the panels was talking about, it was quite trade union focused. It was talking about the just transition uh, for coal workers into um, becoming renewable technicians. And I thought, our whole damn world needs a just transition. We actually all need some steps to change things up in quite a radical way um, and, uh, and to feel secure that that's actually going to meet our needs and to discover that maybe we didn't need so many things in the first place. Uh, there's, there's a lot going on there. Mm. Um, so... Obviously, with climate, we can talk about the destabilisation factor. We can also talk about the clean air crisis, you know, all the pollution. And we can talk about the, um, the renewable resource uh, crisis. You know, at, at the time we're recording this, it was um, the overshoot day yesterday. And, uh, and we have officially already, at July 29, used 2019's resources, the planet's resources. So that's quite uh, an epic realisation. For me, the thing here is, those three things that I talked about, is that there seem to be quite a few different ins for people to get motivated. One of the things that I try to do in my book writing and, and, um, and webinars and things and e-courses is to help people realise that they can do this their way uh, in a way that, they, that feels uh, intrinsically purpose-driven to them and it's going to be quite unique from one person to the next. I'm curious to see what your way is for you. What, what have been some of the main drivers that just really kicked you in the guts and got you going? Mm. I mean, the obvious one is, is being a father. And, and in, in this topic, it was having a two-year-old at the time and really having no clue about how I was going to communicate this topic to her. When you see that innocence and the hope that the kids have and, and you know, the thought of crushing that is, is just, um, you know, as any parent can attest, it's, it's your worst nightmare. And, and to see how kids are feeling now around the world about this topic and the depth to which they're acknowledging what's going on and, and letting it overwhelm them is, is you know, alarming and astonishing and we should be learning from it. Imagine more of our leaders did that and felt the real gravity of what's going on. So that was a huge, I guess that's what I started doing. I started researching for eight months just to see if there were things we could do because I, I didn't know. And I talked to you know almost 70 different academics and economists and scientists and had so many Skype sessions just to get up to speed with, with what the science was, how, how dire things were, but also what were the things we could do. And just the more I went on, I was completely 
just shocked at how little this stuff was getting reported in the mainstream media and how important it was and how it even made me feel as a father hearing about these things um, suddenly motivated me to learn more and want to get involved and take action. And I thought, this is what we need to be telling our kids. Yeah. Uh, not in a blindly optimistic utopian manner. That's, that's terrible parenting. But at least <laughs> to say, yep, you know, let's acknowledge how bad things are. But at, the, but at the same time, know that there are millions, if not billions of people that care about this, are trying to get, find the solutions for it, rolling up their sleeves and taking action, taking to the streets, whatever they might be doing in their own small way. Our children just need to know that and they need to let them have solace with that because um, it made me feel better. Uh, I haven't had to have that conversation with my daughter yet. She hasn't seen the film yet. She's still only five and you know, she's not ready for the complexity of of this issue or the system, but uh, I do feel more than ever that I'm, I'm equipped now to have that conversation with her. I've had the conversation with lots of friends, kids. Um, and it's a tricky one because you you do need to be honest and say, yeah. And there are people that don't want to see this change and they're, they're holding us back. And there's a few people within our, that have traits as human beings that don't have a lot of empathy and, and do want to accumulate power and wealth. And, Unfortunately, a system we've created rewards them and they often become the heads of their organisations or leaders um, mm. or politicians. And, and but what we need to remember is that the majority, a huge majority, are altruistic, kind people. Yep, we've all got selfish traits, but the majority of us want a better world. And it's testament to the fact that we can get on a plane with strangers, we can walk down the street 99.99% of the time and nothing goes wrong, we, we all get on with each other. That's worth celebrating. And I think that's, if we can access that power, then we're going to get through this. But while those small group of people are running the show, it's going to be harder. But I guess it's just reminding ourselves how powerful we are. And I think that's happening around the world at the moment is that people are starting to flex their muscles as a collective. And and that's where I I feel the, the most hope. Yeah, and I think I see pockets of hope in, in the example with um, Germany, for example, where renewables are still costing slightly more than the optimistic forecast of them costing the country. Yet 90% of Germans say, well, that's just the price we pay for doing the right thing by the planet. I, right. I don't care. And, yeah. uh, and deniers are using it. See, the renewables is just too expensive, not worth You know, that whole thing comes into the media and you think, but you're ignoring the fact that the great majority of the population is actually going, cool, I'm cool with that because it's for our planet. And that's yeah. what you get when you have leadership that also says we have to be cool with that. So when we can that's marry right. that amazing grassroots swell with the leadership that sees the right path, then... That's right the change acceleration is, it's fantastic. Yeah, and where there's really great research around, um, you know, that we're deeply social animals. And so there's great studies where if, you know, there's a fire and someone grabs a bucket of water and puts out the fire, that someone else will grab a bucket of water and put out that fire as well. And that correlates to, you know, someone putting solar panels on on their roof. The chances of the neighbour then putting solar panels on it go up exponentially because you're setting a, a new cultural norm about what is the right thing to do, which we all know. We're seeing it with keep cups now. You know, it's almost frowned upon if you've got if you're standing in line and you don't mm. have a keep cup. Like this is how where progress always moves. Is we're starting to set new acceptable parameters, and when you couple that with just the direct action of people taking to the streets, I, I you know often say that we we are in this middle of this transition that we'll look back on probably 20, 30 years, and we'll look at Greta Thunberg and, and you know what she's doing around the world for the climate strikers and 
this is no different to, you know, the abolitionists who, you know, 60 years before slavery ended were completely derided and laughed at and called utopians that, you know, the economy would never survive without slaves. It's no different to the suffragettes and, you know, all the, the men in society saying that, you know, sensible women don't want to vote. You know, that's a, a president of the US said that in 1904. Mm. And look what happened. Um, interracial marriage in America, it's the same thing. Local councils embraced it, then the state government embraced it, and then it got to that federal level. And it's hard not to see similarities now. And, and we've just had our 40th council in Australia declare a climate emergency. Yay. UK government's declaring climate emergency and attested it to the children in the strikes. You know? mm. So, you know, we, we are, something's going on. No one knows where it's going to be and no one can know where it's going to lead us, lead us. but I... I do feel, you know, there's that, that Columbia study that says once we reach 3.5%, once you have an active and engaged population at 3.5%, historically that's when change occurs, it overthrows a government or liberates a territory, when that smaller percentage of the, of the population are engaged. And it would be hard not to argue that we're getting somewhere close to that 3.5%. So, um, you know, I always think that's why the, the sort of more far right are pushing back now as well. They're clutching on to their the last of their profits in the fossil fuel industry. Um, I've spoken to, we've done screenings for many of these energy companies and spoke at a conference recently where one of the, the, the CEOs of a huge oil overseas, uh, US oil company said, yeah, we, we, we've put a carbon tax on ourselves 10 years ago. We know this change is, is happening. We know the government's not going to implement that tax. So we've done it to ourselves to prepare and have some money for the transition. So even at that level, they know what's going on. So, um, you know, again, I just, we've got to be, sh- be careful that we don't just have this big renewables transition and great, we've got clean energy, but we've still got grotesque levels of income inequality, which is destabilising uh, societies. Mm. We're you know, making fake food and we're not healing the soils again. That's my only reticence and fear that might happen is that we're just so blindly focused on the renewables. Whereas, as you've seen in the film, there's so many, many other elements to this that we have to get right if we're going to live on a, on a productive and, and habitable um, planet. Yeah, massive. One of the things I've been so passionate about over the years is regenerative ag. I think I came across it about 10 years ago now and it was just like the light went on and I was like, there is a great way to do this. This is fantastic. And I interview all the wonderful guys, Charlie Arnott, you know, Joel Salatin, some great guys. Saw Charles Massey speak on the weekend, met him, who's a freaking legend. Um, uh, and, And I think it's it's a it's an interesting one because a lot of people at the moment for them it's really expensive to shop that way. It would be like completely out of the ballpark for the average Australian family to spend eight bucks on a head of broccoli. That's just they're just not going to do that because they cannot. Um, so I'm keen to hear. You've obviously researched uh, sociologically as well. So. Have you put much thought into this evaporating middle class that we're unfortunately taking uh, cues from America and very quickly following in their footsteps um, with the rich get richer, poor get poorer? It's almost starting to look like an aristocracy again uh, in America. And um, Neil Ferguson, the uh, applied um, history professor of Harvard, said that um, if we continue down this trajectory, Australia is about 15 years behind America. And, um, and I'd quite like for us not to be, frankly. So I'd like to hear what, you, um, what you've discovered, who you've spoken to. Yeah, it's, it's as an important an issue as the climate, um, to be honest. And I think uh, we are. We're at levels right now that match sort of 
18th, 19th century, you know, you even look at the way that the wealthy now are treated as royals and, and you know, the, the, whether it's the social media or the stories written about them, we, we, you know, we put them on these pedestals. And a moment where we should be just going, hang on, this is destroying the fabric of our society. And there's, uh, I had a lot more of this in the film and we had to take it out because uh, it just oh, felt really? like a film on its own. Yeah. yeah. And um, had another 40 minutes probably just looking at, I guess, the rules of the game, how the system is um, tailored to really suit, obviously, wealth accumulation and corporates and how unless we unlock some of those, we're, we're not going to get to this 2040 that I proposed. And so one of the really interesting stats is from a guy named David Woodward and he works at the World Economic um, Review. It's a, it's a newspaper. And they did a study since basically this, what people call neoliberalism, so sort of deregulation of the markets in the you know, late 70s, early 80s. Over those last three decades, that only 5% of the wealth created in that time has gone to the, the poorest 60%. So 95% of that wealth has stayed within the top 40%. That's why we've just got this huge, these levels of inequality. And to keep that sort of growth narrative alive, this is why we keep, you know, nothing sacred, like, you know, whether it's healthcare, whether it's the planet, just to keep that narrative alive. But as we know, as you mentioned, it's, it's overshoot day yesterday. It's just, it's, a, it's preposterous to mm. think that we can keep growing in a time when we've only got finite resources, but no government's willing to have that conversation. It's almost more taboo than the climate, that resource one, because it means questioning the value of constant economic growth, which, you know, you go into a recession in this company, country, you're going to be ousted, you know, from, from the government, or you're going to lose your place in the G20 photo where all the countries want to be. So that's a big issue. But how it relates to climate, I think, is that we're seeing, obviously, that um, there's no protection on the environment anymore for the sake of growth. That's just being ripped apart. But what people need to understand is some of these rules in the trade treaties, which really affects the flow of resources right around the world, where all these huge decisions are made, are often held in private. There's no access, no journalists around. The public isn't allowed there. It's often a trade or finance minister that represents those decisions where, in fact, those decisions are affecting the stability of our society and our environment, but there's no representative there to talk about that. But also there's a certain clause called an ISDS clause, which means that the corporations can sue the governments if they breach their ability to make profits. And there are classic examples of like a new coal fire power station that was built in Germany recently. And the government's environmental body went and did an assessment and said, you know what, you can't build this because all your wastewaters are going to go into the river and kill the fish. So the company sued the government for breaching their ability to make profit, $1.4 billion. The government couldn't afford that. Plus, they're not allowed to counter sue. So they back down and the coal power station gets built and now their waters pollute the river and the fish are dying. Hmm. So unless we know about that, and there's countless examples of those from on a range of areas. You know, we just, we've just swung from this really centralised government, which, fair enough, we didn't want that anymore. And there's shocking numbers about how many people died in the 20th century from their governments. But we've now swung so far over the other way that people don't trust the corporation, they don't trust the government. We've lost all faith in institutions, our, our governance and our political system. We are ripe for a reboot. You know, we are, mm. we are such wonderful position to regenerate everything our system mm. the way it operates how it interacts and no one knows again what that looks like we all have to have a very big discussion to make that happen but there are things we can do right now that actually and we've seen them we've seen the solutions that act as a really interesting intermediate 
intermediate space to wherever we're going. Just bringing back things to measure in society that we do value that aren't just money and GDP. You know, there's like Bhutan, what they've got their gross national happiness where they measure psychological well-being, environmental um, strength, gender equality, psychological yeah, time use. And every policy has to go through those nine pillars before it gets approved. And I actually went there recently and it was just like sitting on another planet watching these politicians discuss, you know, intergenerational equity around a mining policy. So no, we've got to stop mining because we're now starting to steal the resources from the kids in the future, you know, and thinking this is how it can be. This is how we can start to, to bringing, making visible what is invisible right now, which are the things we deeply care about but we're not factoring. We're just focused entirely on the financial element and look at the schism it's created. Look at the gap. And like you said, look at the way Australia's headed. Mm. Um, and what's, I guess, the most interesting there is that about 60% of the world's emissions are coming from the wealthiest 7%. Mm. So at the same time, we've pushed all this money up to this wealthy class. They're the ones flying around the world, buying free televisions, doing all the damage. And it's little wonder that, you know, the yellow vests in France take to the streets and protest at a carbon tax. Of course they're going to, because they're saying we shouldn't be taxed for this. We're not using it anywhere near as much as, as the aristocracy are or the new aristocracy. So um, it's a wicked, wicked problem, but there's a chance to reinvent. And I think that's the bottom line. That's what the Green New Deal is in the US. That's what they're all pushing. They're saying, let's not just solve the climate issue. If we don't rectify that income inequality, 100%. what's the point? We're That's why I'm really liking Elizabeth Warren's campaign for that reason. She is just yeah. addressing every single level of what needs holistic changing. When you were talking then, it reminded me of that meme. Has anyone tried switching this thing off again and then on again? <laughs> it's just like it just needs the full reboot. Also, you know, without, it is interesting that Elizabeth Warren's running that. You look at Kate Rayworth, you know, our film with the donut. Mm. It's a, it's a, it's a, there's a great, beautiful feminine opportunity here to, well, to see all the interconnectedness of those things. And I, I do think that, that we've looked at it through a very reductionist male lens for a long time. And, and, you know, we are different and we do view things differently. And even some of the solutions I've found for the film that were, were, were from some, you know, wealthier men, they were, again, the same mindset of building giant sucking machines out on the edge of our cities or, iron filings in the sea to reflect the sun, like really limited viewpoints. Well, so limited. If you look at business school training, you're trained to get to the, what's the top line? Tell me the top line. What's the most important thing here? How does it affect the bottom line? No one's looking at all the layers no, in between. No, but yeah. there are, yeah, and I just, the women we spoke to all saw the, the, the interwovenness of everything. So, again, another opportunity to reinvent how we do things and how we structure our society. And if we don't, I just don't, I don't, I can't see us getting through this. And that's where I don't have the optimism. I, I do feel really excited by the future. I do think we're going to get there, but in my dark days where I'm like, oh, it's, it's when we just can't see the paradigm shift that's needed, that we're just seeing everything through this microscopic way, whether it's making fake meats, for example, and thinking that's really oh, going to help us. Like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Again, once you learn about the magic of soil as you have or the, the interconnectedness and the way that the microbes are passed onto the food and then into the cattle or the eggs, whatever it is, yeah. of course that interacts with our body that way. The minute you cut that off, you're destroying mm. yourself. So, um, 
how we get people to see that is is the challenge. And again, you know, that's why I make this film. It's, it's trying to get that story out there. Um, that you know, we have to find new metaphors for, for how we live. And I think, you know, the, again, it's encouraging. You go pre-scientific revolution. Most cultures referred to the land and the planet very differently. They were custodians of the land. They were reverent guests of the land. They saw it in a really different way. And then the language of like Descartes or Bacon is really interesting. It's suddenly, it's like nature is something to extract from and to conquer. We've got to tame and hound her in her wanderings. Or there's a really graphic one where, where Bacon said, we've got to enter and penetrate her every corner. You know, it's Jesus. Very, very raping language. Yeah, rape and, and pillage. That's where it comes that's from. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly what we've done ever since. So unless we reconnect those metaphors, and again, this is where it's our big challenge because as we talked to the very beginning, our kids aren't connecting with it. They're on their devices. You know, I read the other day the most graphic stat I've seen in a while, which is that American prison inmates are now spending more time outdoors than two-thirds of children in the UK. Far out. You know, because they're, they're having to be taken out for their walk. So how do we do that? How do we get the kids to value nature and, and give it meaning again and fight for it and love it because they deeply connect with it? They do intrinsically, but how do we get them to hold on to that rather than losing them to this seductive pull of this entire cyber world with all its tricks and wizardry. That's, um, I think one of the most important things any parent can do is keeping your child in reverence with nature and, and mm. deeply connected to it and take them for walks and make sure they understand its significance on our own health and to the, 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 the planet's health. Because if we lose that, then, you know, all is lost, I feel. Mm. My son and I were driving along a couple of months ago now and uh, they watched behind the news at school that um, junior ABC show. I remember it myself. Oh, <laughs> yep. And uh, we had, who did we have? Was it Richard Glover? Uh, oh, who's the guy with the curly kind of fro, but like he's Caucasian? We had a guy, Paul, Paul, someone who now does the weather. I think he does the weather on ABC. Oh, okay. Right. I can't remember his name. We we watched that religiously. Yeah, same. And so I was all excited when Seb said, you know, we're watching it at school and he's, he's great. He's actually really enjoying current affairs, enjoying being able to talk to me about it. But one day driving along and he goes, um, I hope I get to live like a good long life. I'm like, of course you will, sweetheart. You know, he's so healthy, strong, eat wonderful food. We're out in nature a lot. And he's like, yeah, you know, till at least 40. And I'm 43 and I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, why, why 40, sweetheart? He's like, well, you know, climate change. And I just, I was just so sad. And he was also matter of fact about it. Like, you know, this is a big deal, mum. And we, our generation is not feeling like we can see a path to being little old granny and grandpa on a porch. And, uh, and so we had a big chat and uh, I said, uh, very similar to what you, you've been talking about this whole time and, and what you do with the film. Um, you know, what I do on my dark day when I feel hopeless is I find one thing that I can do that's going to change something. Even if it's like put a seed in a pot, even if it's go collect some rubbish on the beach, whatever it is, you know, donate some money to carbon eight or farmer's footprint, you know, whatever it is, you just do something. So you counteract that hopelessness with action. 
Um, and, uh, and we've been actively doing that ever since. And I was thinking, gosh, the last couple of weeks, we haven't done anything particularly, um, obvious in that realm. So called up the mother-in-law said, Hey, you got any veggies you need to plant this weekend? Cause we're going down to the farm. Um, can we just structure that as something that we do for the afternoon and like get the next crops in the soil for you and with you, and you can just teach us, you know, what we need to do. And, uh, and so that's right. Tick. That's going to be great. So I think this is one of the big things we need to do. You mentioned utopian storytelling and how that's not effective because it then makes us think, oh, yay, there's lots of people doing stuff, so I don't need to. Um, And so in terms of that then, um, how do, I mean, sorry, I guess what I'm trying to say is the what's your 2040 is something I'm really excited about because you then keep showing people what the next step is. Yeah. Uh, one of them is uh, being passionate about girls' education. So let's talk about that a bit because that is a really exciting revelation when it comes to connecting that yeah. to the climate crisis. Yeah, I mean, just quickly, the, the, what was really important was that platform of actions because I think, as you probably know, how often you watch a documentary and you, you do feel quite opened up or inspired or ready to do something and then if there isn't a support network there or structures to do that, then it's so easily just to get back on with life. And, you know, that was a nice feeling that doco, but you didn't do anything about it. So we were lucky enough to sort of get a lot of support philanthropically to develop this platform off the back of the film. And um, again, another reason was to say, it feels like it's been quite prescriptive with people say, Oh, you've got to eat less meat, ride your bike to work and buy a Tesla. Like, and that's, Mm. That's not everyone's cup of tea. And, and we know, again, that you're much more inclined to get involved with something if you connect with it and you're passionate about it and it's a topic that you resonate with. So that's why people can go to the Watch Your 2040 website. There's an activate your plan button. So it's like a personalised plan based on questions you might ask or the type of person you are or what you're connected with in the film. And you've got a much better chance of seeing that through and we'll give you six or seven things you can do based on those questions. But, yeah, the Educating Girls and um, Empowering Women one was... Yeah, massive shock to me. And I I didn't know whether it was just that I was incredibly naive, but um, it it feels like when people have seen the film, this is another, it's a shock for most people. And and for those that don't know, basically the the stats say that if, um, and this is not just in the developing world, this is even in wealthier nations, if uh, a girl doesn't complete her education at school, she's more likely to have about five or more children. Whereas if she's allowed to complete her education, has access to reproductive health services and job opportunities that she gets to choose when and how many children she has. And that number is about two children. So the difference that makes according to the UN by 2050 is 1.1 billion people. Mm. So a billion less people on the planet by 2050 obviously has a profound impact on our resources, climate change, all sorts of things. So in a topic that can be, um, risky sometimes and divisive and religious and eugenics and all sorts of things. Mm. This feels like a beautiful way to solve this is we say, let's empower girls and women because that's a great thing to do anyway. What a wonderful thing. But this beautiful bonus we get is the benefits to the planet and resources. Mm. So again, if that's something people connect with, there's, there's things on our website where you can go and um, meet, you can mentor a girl online once a week. And lots of people have done that. There's the Malala foundation. There's any number of foundations that, can allow you to take action and help on this topic because 
um, as Project Drawdown, who's a big use of our science that we base the film on, they ranked the top 100 solutions to reversing global warming and found that when you combine number six, which is educating girls, and then the family planning element, which is providing access to reproductive health services, it's actually the number one solution to reversing global warming, which is astounding. Yeah, it is astounding, followed by regenerative agriculture and uh, right tackling food yeah. waste. So good. I know. Um, yeah, and, and even I love that silver pasture, which is, again, using livestock in a really smart way with um, trees and rotating them is number nine, you know, mm. yet most people out there right now would just go blanketly, cows are bad, they're evil for the planet, they're terrible. But again, as with anything, the nuance is says something very different. And, and yes, we need to dramatic, dramatically reduce our meat consumption. There's no doubt about that. That's mainly for land use. But the meat we do eat, or those that choose to, do, to eat that meat, if it's regeneratively farmed, the, the cattle can sequester far more carbon into the soil than the methane they're emitting. And, and thankfully, that's starting to get out now and be accepted. And as you know, it's an incredibly exciting area, the regenerative agriculture and, and starting to heal our soils again. Yeah, so exciting. I've, I've been deep into the topic because my next book touches on that. So yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. I'm very, very thrilled to see just how easy it is if we can, you know, and part of it is even if you can only afford to do two or three things with your grocery basket right now, do it because it helps kickstart the economy yeah. of scale. Anything yeah. anyone can do. It's all about yeah. the farmers believing that it's worth making the transition themselves half the That's time. Right. And, uh, and yeah. the grassroots and teaches them that. Yeah, and connecting it, I think a big way to, to sell this is going to be connecting it back to our own health. And um, we've been doing some work with this, this organisation called SubPod, which you might know of, and they mm. basically like a little garden kit where you put your food waste in and this army of worms breaks the food waste down and then turns it into soil, but in a really like, clean, no-smelling, simple way. It even has a bench seat on it. And just trying to work out even how we get that messaging out there and... and one of these stats I found recently that you might have come across, which I think is just quite profound, is that because of the health of our soils and the amount of minerals and nutrients that have just been depleted because of our constant tilling and ploughing and chemical use, that you would need to eat eight oranges today to get yeah. the same level of vitamin A that one orange had 60 years ago yeah. due to the soil health. Now, that, that should be enough for everyone to understand the importance of, of soil and reconnecting and putting carbon back in it and organic matter. Because this isn't just about the environment and planet, it's fundamental to our own well-being and how our body deals with all those microbes in our guts and the health of that soil is just so crucial to our own personal health. So I'm hoping that that narrative starts to emerge over the next few years as well as I'm, I'm pretty sure it will because it's already, it's already bubbling away, as you know. Oh, yep, I reckon it will. Um, the... Um the community has asked a couple of questions and there were a couple here that, uh, that I also wanted to ask. So first one is with everyone that Damon has spoken to, do you have a suggestion on the most effective career change we could make to support the cause? How cool is that question? I just loved it. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I would say, again, this is that thing where it's very hard to be prescriptive. It's, it's so crucial, but it's based on something that you deeply connect with and love. So if it is girls' education, if it is farming and regen farming, if it is energy, if it is seaweed when you watch the film, like to find that thing that, as Paul Hawkins says, what's the thing that lights you up so mm. that you go, this is, this is something that I could actually spend the rest of my life with or I feel deep purpose around. And I think any of these things we're talking about, again, this is a, 
a story that often gets neglected when we talk about AI talking, taking all our jobs and whatnot and what kind of bleak future there are. If we're going to reach this 2040 that, that I propose, that we're going to need billions of new jobs, you know, to, to redesign our cities, to, to kickstart all these regen projects or decentralise our food system or our energy. There are these jobs available and they're starting to emerge now and, and that is a reason to be excited is that it does... They're jobs that have great value to people and too many people are doing jobs they absolutely hate now. I'm happy if the machines do some of those as long as we're providing the better jobs and we fund those and we help the retraining, whatever it might be. But it's just, again, it's an opportunity there that, that the world does need all of us to find our agency or find our strength. I happen to make films. That was my little contribution. But someone else might have a great skill set within an HR department. What can they do that aligns to regenerating the planet instead of you know, work at the moment that obviously is, is doing the opposite. Mm. Um, and then a couple of practical ones around the film. As one of our listeners in the UK wants to know when it's coming there and will you do screenings, what, what the format might be once it comes out there. What's the global plan? Yeah, so it's, it's pretty, pretty great. So we, um, it, we are going to release in the UK, it looks like late October, early November, and we'll do a similar like some special uh, event screenings and um, probably get Kate Rayworth is in the film and a few other people and we'll do a panels and then it will open in normal cinemas and it's going right through Europe doing that. And then it will be in the U S uh, at the start of next year. And it's a similar um, style. Uh, we did find out this week that the, which is really great. The UN are going to show two minutes of the film at the UN general assembly to every world leader on September the 23rd, which awesome. It's so great to plant that seed and, and, you know, use some of the future visioning there and at least get them put on their, on their radars. Uh, and again, like we did in Australia with this sort of outreach and impact campaign and giving people actions, we're doing the same in the UK and, and throughout Europe as well and, and working already now with people on the ground there to just make sure we set up, you know, direct actions that people can get involved with, like the Seaweed platform here. We're, we're looking to probably launch one off the coast of, of the UK as well. The one here is nearly... Uh, as a crowdfund and we're only, um, you know, we're very close. To, it's going to get built in the next couple of months. So Intrepid want to build another one. So hopefully that'll coincide with um, the UK so that we can just direct people to, to getting involved and helping. Yeah, awesome. And in terms of Aussies wanting to see the film who missed out on seeing it in the first wave of cinema, do they have to host a screening for that to happen or find a screening? How's it, how's it work for the Aussies? Can we buy it online? Yeah, very soon. So it's, uh, it's still in some cinemas. So it's nearly finished its cinema run. And then I think it's just started on the airlines, which is an interesting conundrum, but, a, you know, maybe <laughs> it's a good offset flight to watch. Uh, there should be a requirement. And then well, the, actually, I said to, um, <laughs> at the Climate Reality Conference, I had one of the airline industry body kind of the sustainability guy yes. um, at our table. And he was fantastic. And it was actually quite heartening to hear how much airports oh, yeah. and airlines were doing around the world. I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even know. I thought, um, yeah. I thought it was far further behind. And he said uh, something that uh, they would consider doing because it came up in one of our think tank sessions was uh, making it illegal for an airline to not have a tick box uh, and price for offsetting your flight. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty right. cool progress. It is because it's quite. I mean, you can't steps. offset everything, so obviously no. the game is to regenerate. That's the principal yes. um, focus. But, but you less, know. Than, less than ten percent of people actually tick that box in Australia, whether it's Virgin or Qantas. People just don't tick it. 
they don't believe it, they don't understand what it is. So there's some communicating they have to do around that. But also, I mean, I, I do feel there are some quite exciting developments around air travel that are happening at the moment with different types of fuels or battery planes that are now taking off that, you know, won't be around at a large level for a while, but at least there's some really interesting developments in that space. Um, but you're right, I think, um, yeah, so get, get, getting back to it, you can host your own screen at the moment through FanForce. It is showing on the airlines. But then I think, and then it's available to schools in about two weeks, and then the end of September it'll be on uh, one of the TV networks. There's a few of them have made an offer at the moment, and then uh, streaming platforms, iTunes, all that happen in Australia will be um, end of September, and then obviously that'll just follow after the cinema release around the world as the film opens. Amazing. Damon, thank you so much. Such a great chat. So great to um, lift the lid on the doco a little bit and talk more broadly about some of the bigger societal issues. It's often you you see a film like this and you know there are great minds behind it and so much research has been done. Uh, And I just want to thank you for the work you do. My community loves it and um, has absolutely raved about the film and they feel like they've got a positive conversation that they can share with their kids now which is uh such a big one and um and i guess for for the last question i'd love to ask you what you know you complete a huge picture uh, uh, project like this and obviously it's got a couple of major waves still to come do you then focus your uh, energy on the what's your 2040 or is it a different group of people that you work with who run that so that you mm. can stay the storyteller? Because, you know, we all have to stay in our wheelhouse, right? It's really important because that's where we can give our most. So what does your next big thing look like? Mm, that's an excellent question. And I, <laughs> it happened on sugar film as well that I, I, I end up feeling a bit like a, a CEO of some kind of sugar thing. And that's <laughs> not what I want yeah. to be. And, same as this, that thankfully we've got a beautiful, magnificent team that are doing a great job and dealing with, liaising with all the things that are coming in. But yeah, I've sort of got my foot in that camp in terms of working out what the partnerships are and, and it's very exciting what is going on behind the scenes and the amount of governments and councils that are doing screenings. But yeah, I ultimately want to just keep telling stories and making little you know, films about these solutions and so we do have some funding to keep doing that. But I think what's going to be next is um, a few people have approached about doing a more extrapolated like a TV show, maybe a six or eight part series where we can do a deep dive onto each of these topics, look at the barriers, look at what is stopping. A lot of things I had to leave out of the film uh, and really just, you know, looking at in, in much more depth at Regen Ag or the economy or the ocean solutions and things like that. So I feel like whatever I do is going to be under this umbrella. As you know, you, what else is there once you... Once exactly. You really, it's, yeah. it's like this is the most important topic of our generation, of our time, and we have this opportunity to to live through one of the most exciting transitions ever that mm. the humans have gone through. So I, I want to do whatever I can to alert people to that and, and keep working in this space. And I, I have realised more and more of that I've, as I've gone on how important it is to get the stories out there and to tell them. It's kind of everything storytelling in a lot of ways. And we've had a very large, wealthy, powerful group of people that have been telling a counter story for a long time. And I think um, people are ready to hear something new. And I think that's why they're responding so well to the film. So I just want to keep going. Awesome. Well, we want you to keep going too. Thanks so much for today. So good. My pleasure. Congrats on your podcast too. So thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Low Tox Life from here on in? 
Well, you've obviously got lowtoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action and there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written. You can also find me on Instagram at lowtoxlife and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show. You're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.